Hello and welcome to the Hall of Fame podcast featuring the best movies of all time. We are going through and discussing the elite cinema from all generations. We are back this week to induct some more films. My name is Matt Levy and here's my partner, Mark Rossi. What's going on, Mark? Not too much, man. We got a, we got a big one today, so I'm, I'm ready to sink my teeth into it. Yeah, this is an ambitious set. I'd say here we're, we're talking about, and I'd say it's a little bit of a cheat because we didn't select one or even two movies, but we felt like we had to talk about it this way because they kind of feel like they belong together. Yeah, it definitely feels like it belongs together with, you know, the Lord of the Rings, since it was basically filmed all at the same time as a trilogy, it felt only uh, appropriate for us to tackle it as, you know, one piece. And I think... When you look at, you know, Star Wars or The Matrix, the first movie was sort of its own thing. And you didn't know there'd be trilogies at the time. But when they made these movies, obviously, they were falling back on the original books that were, you know, decades older. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien's books are infamous. They're, they're of legend. There's a whole language. I mean, they had a lot to go off of here. Yeah, there's a ton of source material. Tolkien being a, a linguistics professor... He really went into the weeds uh, as far as creating multiple different languages. And the appendices of the, the books are almost as extensive as the novels themselves, which are pretty extensive. So there's a ton of information that they drew on from the appendices actually ended up being a large portion of how Jackson ended up structuring the films. And, you know, they even took some information from the, the Silmarillion and, basically everywhere they could get uh, material from, from his work. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Now, I wanted to ask you, what are your prior experiences with The Lord of the Rings and the J.R.R. Tolkien books or even the animated movies that were around when we were younger? Do you have any prior or any experience with any of those? So I have a distinct memory of, of when I was made aware that this, uh, this was happening. I was watching... Rush Hour 2, I believe, at the time. We were in the theater seeing that, and a trailer had come up, and my uncle, who was a big, big, big fan of uh, The Lord of the Rings, just sprinted out because I was waiting online for concessions. He says, he says, get concessions later. They're doing Lord of the Rings, Mark. They're doing Lord of the Rings. I'm like, I don't know what that means. Yeah, um, you know, I'm yeah. kind of in the same boat as you. You know, when, when the Marvel movies started to come out, or when some of these other properties started to go to the screen, I feel like I knew and other people knew what they were. Right. I didn't really know that much about Lord of the Rings prior to 2001. I actually grew up with the Hobbit books. Those are the books that were more in my life, maybe through school or through my personal life. Right. I had read, I think, about half of the, of the Hobbit book. But this was all very foreign to me. Yeah, I had read some of the Hobbit as well. Never really dove into Lord of the Rings until I saw the first movie and then you know, dove into it afterwards because I, I didn't want to wait the year to get more uh, more story. But yeah, it, it it really delivered on that excitement that my, my uncle had shared at that moment in time. And uh, there were obviously lots of people that were very excited about this adaptation, you know, coming to fruition. Yeah, and, uh, the, and the choosing of, of Peter Jackson, I think is interesting. You know, he, he was not a mega blockbuster type director, and I think it's interesting that they chose him. And I think it ended up being, you know, in you know, retrospect, one of the best choices, I'd say, in 
cinema history. Yeah, it was an interesting journey that he kind of took to to get the the film made in the way that we ended up experiencing it. He had been trying to make a pitch while he was completing post-production on another film, and he couldn't think of a pitch that didn't become Tolkien-esque. So they ended up just kind of pitching uh, a trilogy where they would do The Hobbit and then do two Lord of the Rings movies. And for logistical reasons, they couldn't get rights to The Hobbit uh, at that time. So they had done a deal with Miramax to get The Lord of the Rings made into two films. Then the Weinsteins had kind of come in and you know during, during the pre-production stage and said they wanted to have it reduced to one movie or to shorten it down to two hour, you know, two you know, two different two-hour films. Uh, and they ended up, you know, meeting with New Line Cinema and New Line Cinema was able to take over the rights and then uh, asked him to expand it out into a trilogy and the rest, as they say, is history. Right. So then we have 2001's The Fellowship of the Ring. You have 2002's The Two Towers. And then you have the conclusion, the 2003's The Return of the King. And as you said, these films were produced and distributed by New Line Cinema. There is sort of a venture between New Zealand and the United States with Wingnut Films. These films, we're talking specifically today about Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit films, and we can talk about that separately. I don't feel like they hit that as strong as they did these movies. I think they're fine. I enjoy them. But these three movies just feel like a special combination of fine acting, wonderful fantasy storytelling, some of the best as far as at the time, as far as special effects, music that is just gorgeous. And just you putting it all together, the screenplay, the, 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 how you feel for the characters and just the way it's filmed the wonderful cinematography and direction. This is, this is a complete film. This is a, a masterpiece of, of filmmaking. A total overall masterpiece of filmmaking. And you touched on all the things that they, they nailed and got right with a lot of people that, you know, going into it. And again, this is the recurring theme of our podcast that you would never have expected to be the people right to make this type of, you know, a film series work. One thing I think that still stands out when we revisit it is just how fantastic the establishing shots and just the tracking shots are, you know, to this day. The work that they did with those particular shots is it's breathtaking. The first time you get into Hobbiton in The Fellowship of the Ring, but I, it literally took my breath away in the theater. And I still have that same type of experience when I'm seeing it now. But yeah. then when you tie that together with the music that Howard Shore did, rightfully winning three Grammys and two out of you know three uh, Academy Awards for best score. It's well, I, I agree with you. I think incredible. when I watch films like Lord of the Rings or I watch films like even the Harry Potter series, when I'm in these fantasy worlds, I want to see, even Game of Thrones, I want to see locations that are jaw-dropping, and I want to see castles and caves and mountains, and you get all of that here. You get these wonderful locales, and I think it's exactly like you said, that this this is breathtaking. When you, I had the luxury of watching this recently, probably for the, let's say, 10th time I've seen each of these films. Sometimes I go for the extended version if I'm really brave. Right. But I had the luxury of watching these in the 4K edition over the past month. And it's still breathtaking. Now, some of the special effects I can poke fun at because it's early 2000s and some of the Golem stuff is maybe not perfect. But you have to remember the time. Well, everything was ahead of its time as far as the digital and the special effects. And as you said, some of these shots, you think you can just pause the movie, 
print it out, put it up on your wall and stare at it. Yeah, it's 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 just stunning. It's gorgeous the way that they they set up those establishing shots to to really immerse you in the world. And as I was going into it, I again, I I was just looking at it with fresh eyes, not really with a, a full understanding of you know the world of middle earth but then i was looking to my my dad and my uncle who were big fans of the series and just to see how they were seeing it. they're like this is exactly how you saw it and like illustrations and filled it in in your mind like you couldn't have done it any better i agree you know when you think back middle earth the shire gundor and all these other locations that you come across throughout the film Rohan, is that what it is? Rohan, yeah. Rohan. You go to each of those things, they feel different. They feel distinct. They have personality and traits. You feel like, don't you feel like, Mark, that you've been there, that you've walked these corridors or you've been in these areas, you understand the verticality of Gondor and you feel like in Rohan, you feel like you understand all of the different areas. And that just, just I think that speaks gravity to just amazing filmmaking that you can understand. These are not real places but they feel like real living places. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. They really did an amazing job with locations to make each of these different parts of this world feel unique and different and have their own feel to them. Even the the two different, you know, elven uh, lands feel extremely different. When you go from Rivendell to Mirkwood, they're completely different feels. So you're you're shooting a lot on location throughout New Zealand, and New Zealand is a, you know, obviously has a gorgeous countryside. So they had lots of places to kind of pick from, but you know you have to give a shout out to the the location scouts because they did in, incredible work with uh, with setting everything up. I really couldn't agree more. And this movie, for me, I agree with you. I didn't have that prior Lord of the Rings knowledge, but this tapped into for me that that fantasy, that video game nerd, or just that loves the stories of elves and dwarves and shooting arrows and swords. And I feel like if you're into any of that, you you just you got trapped in just the fantasy, and it, it didn't always feel that fantastical. Somehow, it somehow feels like a real life grounded world it doesn't seem over the top it doesn't seem silly it's all taken very seriously and i think that makes people like us and i think a lot of people the majority of people really just enjoy spending time in this world yeah and that was definitely by design peter jackson had you know in several interviews subsequent to this had talked about what type of feel they were going for and what type of aesthetic they were going for and what really influenced the feel of the film and he said that one of their biggest influences was Braveheart he wanted the the movie to feel a little more like Braveheart and a little less fantastical i mean you have you know wizards and balrogs and you have spells being cast but yet it feels like you were just saying grounded in reality you know it was probably a little Game of Thrones-esque before Game of Thrones ever was a thought in HBO's mind. So taking those fantastical elements, but but keeping us in the real world definitely helps to, to make it feel a little more grounded, even though it's in this fictional place. Yeah, I would say the, the part for me where I get pulled out a little bit, where I start to say, okay, this is science fiction, is in Return of the King, where, you know, he goes to recruit the undead you know the the ghosts to help him fight and that's where it for me i felt like okay we got ghosts now right. now we hit a new level of, of, of fantasy but before that i think it's exactly like you said when 
the wizard does a spell or the trees are walking and talking or any of even hobbits having feet that could be that hairy <laughs> nothing seems ridiculous and i think that is partially to peter jackson's vision and how he saw all this working and i don't even know that jrr tolkien could have imagined it coming to film this way you know if they were alive you know if you were alive to see it as film people i think we we usually have to hear from people that are fans of books regularly it's like oh the book is the book versions of it's better i i you know it's better in your mind if you can come up with better tracking shots and establishing shots than Peter Jackson came up with and a better soundtrack in your mind to fit that scene than Howard Shore could, first off, you should be a billionaire. And second off, you haven't and you're not going to be because you're a liar. Well, let's let's get into that, Mark, because I think we, we started with this talking about just the wonderful story, which you know, this fantasy story, these three movies that tell this amazing tale. And then we talked about some of the amazing environments, but I think saying, you know, the soundtrack, the score, the music that, that really guides you through this entire movie. And I think that adds to part of the locations. So we're talking about Gundor and Rohan, each of them have their own like theme. So you hear these wonderful themes playing as you're visiting or leaving these locations and they become like part of the journey. You know? Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't describe it better. Howard Shore uses a lot of different themes for for different areas, you know, within the world of Middle Earth and a lot of different um, just even if not the theme itself, they're just kind of musical motifs that he kind of rewinds back to. But the one that always sticks in my mind is that introduction where you see Gandalf arriving in Hobbiton, and him encountering Frodo, just that concerning Hobbits, that theme for the Hobbits and the Shire for me is is it gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling. I agree. And I, I had read that Howard Shore had actually written that before Jackson had even shot the film, before he even started shooting the Frodo's theme and the Shire, which I agree with you. As soon as you start hearing those, it's just like this, but it, I feel like the music really embodies each place, you know? And the music of the Shire gives you this just like, Nice, relaxing, it's a peaceful place, it's green, it's lush. People don't like too much excitement, too much disturbance, really. Right. And the music does such a good job of conveying, you know, each of the areas. Yeah, it, it, they do a really great job. And even if you look at the in the first film, in Fellowship of the Ring, when they're basically setting you up and, give, and catching you up with most of the information you need to know of, like, this is what's setting the wheel in motion. The music that they set up with that iconic... Lord of the Rings title sequence theme, it's it's just just great work. I think Lord of the Rings is one of the few film series that isn't connected to John Williams, where the music's really taken on a life of its own, where it's kind of traveling, and and people want to see orchestras perform the Lord of the Rings music. Yeah, I agree with you. This music, you can put this up there with the best of the best as far as. I'd say fantasy scores kind of have their own kind of feel to them. And this is, this is up there in the best. Uh, it's, it's hard for me. Star Wars is different. It's almost hard to compare the two because they're just so different. These, the score that is written for this is this beautiful, as you said, you know, this orchestra sound that I wouldn't really call Star Wars is not the same feel. This has this, this sort of beauty. And then you go to these, you know, Rohan and Gondor, and it's got these almost like military and, and war and these these town, these village sounds to them. 
it's just so different. It's so hard to compare. Yeah, I think I think you're right. There's, there's it's a little bit harder to compare. Star Wars has a few different themes that are tied to specific characters. I think Lord of the Rings, what makes this music great, and I think might kind of speak to what you're talking about, how it differs, is that I think the music is very much intertwined with the visuals, more so I, even even than Star Wars. Like anytime I'll hear, like we were going over before concerning hobbits, I just imagine that entire sequence playing out between Frodo and Gandalf. And I hear the music, the main theme that everyone remembers from Lord of the Rings isn't even really played until they're on the bridge of Khazad Doom. And I have that sequence in my head of them running across and arrows flying at them. So it's really, really inter intertwined very well uh, with the visuals and within the plot of the film maybe even more so than with Star Wars. I agree. And I think, you know, from the beginning, you know, you have the story of Frodo and they kind of catch you up on you know, what happened in The Hobbit. They give you this brief, kind of like three minute, what happened to the ring and where did it go from the war to Gollum to eventually to Frodo's uncle. So, you know, so it, it's it's been passed along and passed along to Bilbo, then to Frodo. And, and then it comes where the movie starts and you have... Gandalf coming into town. So you start with this this wizard. He's just so likable. I don't know what it is about the actor Ian McKellen. He's just so likable in everything he does. He's this jolly old man that I think that you just have to just root for him in every movie he's in, even if he's Magneto in X Men. I yeah. just he's just so just charming. There's a draw to Ian McKellen that you really can't describe. He has what they would call a je ne sais quoi. Uh, it's an I don't know what, but he whatever it is, he has it. And I know he's been around a long time, but I think it took, you know, the X-Men series and the Lord of the Rings series to really bring him to the mainstream's eye as far as just being a favorite to audiences. There's just there's just this lovable quality about him. And yeah, maybe it is that je ne sais quoi, but he's he's got it. And the second he rolls into town and, you know, Frodo is enamored by him, everyone in the town is blown away by him. And just from there, you feel the size of him versus the the hobbits and you see him in the hob in bilbo's home and you just see already the mastery of the filmmaking they did a lot of, i know practical effects to make right. him look really big in the house and you you still you already in the first five to ten minutes get a feel for what you're about to embark on this amazing journey and i don't think we need to rehash the entire story because it might take us longer than the nine hours it takes to watch it yeah it might. <laughs> but let me ask you as far as story and as far as the movies themselves, before we dive into you know the characters, the actors and all that, do you have favorite movies uh, as far as the order of the three? Which one's your favorites? Oh, this is a tough one. I was thinking about that in preparation for this, and it's, it's really difficult for me to kind of separate one from the other. I'm not saying this just as a, I mean, maybe I, I, there's no way to really separate the fandom from the critical analysis, I guess. it's. It, I don't really have a weak link of the three, but I, I would probably say that Return of the King is my favorite, then it's a toss-up in the other two. It might be Fellowship and then Two Towers, but that's no knock on Two Towers because I think that's a phenomenal film. Yeah, it's interesting. I think your first initial answer, which was honest and sincere, is probably true for me too in that these movies, I think they have their 
their stronger moments, each of them. And I think some of them have their slower where they're world building and introducing you to things. And I think fellowship does a lot of world building and, and introducing you to all the characters, the world, the lands, and it's overwhelming a little bit, not as overwhelming, I'd say as the first season to a game of Thrones, right? but it is overwhelming learning all that. And I'd say return of the King also has a, I'd say a drawn, a long drawn out, ending which they do tie up almost every loose end possible which is amazing right but when they're on the volcano and the eagles come to get them it goes black for a long time mm-hmm. long enough that when people are in the theaters they thought it was ending and there's yep. still like a half an hour 40 minutes after that ending one of four coming is is how a lot of people i i heard a lot of rounds of applause and people saying what it's not over yet oh, uh, okay but okay if i had to if you know guns in my head i had to make a decision i think the two towers would probably be surprisingly my favorite i just think that battle at helm's deep is i think it's still the best how somehow they i think it's a masterful sequence because they take a battle that's over an hour long and they somehow it never loses a beat it never feels overwhelming as a watcher that there's too much that you feel like sometimes action movies they just drill into you too much but they somehow find moments in the battle where you know, Aragon and, and Gimli will be off on the side trying to come up with a way to knock the guys off the bridge, the orcs. And where there'll be another sequence happening over here where they're going to bomb this area or they'll go to the king and he's doing something. So it's, it's really interesting how they can take Helm's Deep and just it, it's not overwhelming. It doesn't slow down. It just feels just right. Just the flow of it. The Helm's Deep battle is, is definitely a masterclass on how to make a battle have emotional heft, but not kind of settle in that for too long. There's moments of levity, there's humor, there's emotional release, there's plant and payoff with there's, Gandalf's there's return. When oh yeah, there's everything. There, right. There's, I'd say there's a lot of laughs. I mean, when, right. when the, you know, the dwarf is saying, throw me, don't tell the elf, give me a box. Can, is there a box or something? Right. You know, right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of levity. And the, the, the battle goes on so long, even though Gandalf says, you know, on the third morning or something like that, I'm going to mess right. up the quote, but he says, look to the, you look know, to look, the east. To, look to there you go. And you almost forget that because the battle is going so on. You're so emotionally involved in what's happening that you forget. So when he shows up and it's, you know, the lights and you see all the characters, you get the chills. And it's this amazing moment when they come marching down at the orcs. You think they're done for. They're outnumbered. Right. And... I just think that whole sequence from beginning to end is is really spectacular. I couldn't have described it better. You you really do get so lost and, and kind of tied into it that you forget about that plant that they had that, oh yeah, he's going to come back. But when Aragon comes to, to Theoden and, and convinces Theoden to rally his troops one more time yeah. for what's probably going to be a fruitless endeavor, yeah. you're like... Oh, oh! They're going, they're going to their doom right now. But they're they're riding out into battle. This is a heroic moment. And then you see that sun break, and you're like, just like click clacking in the back of your head. You're like, oh wait, he said something about the sun rising, didn't he? And then, oh, what? Yeah, what a moment! It's and then it's even great. you know the 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 other two hobbits, I believe Pippin, they're off with the trees, going to I think to Isendor. That's happening in between the battle, but it never really you don't lose focus. You don't feel like it's distracting you. Right. That's sort of another front that's happening. It's kind of a B plot, but that becomes a very important plot as well. So I think they do such a good job with, let's talk about some of these characters. And I know we're probably going to go long on this one, talking about the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but 
Let's talk about some of the, as for, for you and me, some of the standout characters of this movie. Sure. Well, there's so many characters to, to really kind of dive into. Frodo obviously is, is going to be your, your major character and Elijah Wood does a, a phenomenal job. This is one of his first main roles. He's a kid when they started you know, filming this. When they started filming this, he was actually, I think, 18. And by the time they finished reshoots and they finished the trilogy, he's like 22. So, and he uh, shows such a range of emotion. You get to see him evolve through the movie, and he's a boy when this starts. Like you said, not by just age, but just he's been in the Shire, hasn't experienced much, and here he is on this adventure, and he's this happy, sweet, cheerful kid when this all begins, very innocent, and he just wants to help. He just wants to do his part. He wants everyone just to go back to a peaceful life, and he's willing to do whatever it takes. And then you have his, his partner in crime, who's who's willing to do anything for, for Frodo. Yeah, yeah. I think Samwise is, is really for me the, the character of all characters there. He's he's the real hero. He's, he's the, so selfless. He's so the heartbeat. Selfless. Yeah, he's he's the epitome of selfless. He's the heartbeat of this entire narrative. And that's something that even you know Tolkien himself had said is that he, he found Samwise's devotion, you know, to be basically the inspiration and, and to be the best of people. He really based the character of Samwise uh, off of, you know, batsmen who were basically like infantry during the world wars and just how selfless they were and devoted to a cause that they were willing to put, you know, someone else's orders above their own safety. And what uh, better person to cast than, you know, you want to cast a character that, you know, Samwise never gives up. Well, cast Rudy, Sean yeah. Aston, who never gave up in Rudy. So, you know, it's funny. He has really not been in the public eye much between Lord of the Rings and Rudy. He kind of had his lull there. I know he probably did a couple things, but you know, Rudy has, I'd say, a big following. People have seen the, the Notre Dame movie, and it's a very inspirational movie. He, you know, never gives up. And here you have the Samwise, who never gives up on Frodo, never gives up on the mission. He's always thinking they're going to make it, they're going to make it, even when things... How do these two hoppers think they're going to make it all the way through orcs and, and monsters and this and that? And it really is a story of, you know, these two characters. They're, this, they're the heart of the story, correct? Yeah, I, would, I couldn't agree with you more. They're definitely the heart of the story. Their relationship, their, their friendship, the, the, the bro down of, of Frodo and Sam, you really can't surpass it. Uh, his devotion to Frodo and, and his kind of stout, you know, unwavering devotion to him, to, to their mission is just the, it, it really is what, what pushes this, this narrative forward. If you strip it down, it's, it's kind of a, a coming of age story for, for Frodo and for Sam more than anything else. I agree. I, I think 100%. I think you could, you know, there's always so many different subplots that, that take place in this movie, but the main story is delivering this ring to this mountain so we can be destroyed. That is, that's what is their, that is their main goal. So yes, sometimes there are certain sequences where sometimes you'll be a half an hour, 40 minutes, or even hours sometimes will pass. And you're really not that worried or concerned with what Frodo and Sam are doing because there'll be some giant battle or something else that exciting that's happening, but they are the heart. They are the main storyline. Everything else is to protect them, to help them, to guide them, or try and do whatever they can to distract the enemies from them. But it is about them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also a, a credit to the story itself there and to the devotion also of the rest of the fellowship. 
early in the the film obviously uh there's i I should say in the trilogy the fellowship breaks for all intents and purposes yeah so early in the trilogy the the fellowship kind of fractures in it and it breaks frodo's made aware that there's going to be a betrayal within the fellowship and baromir tries to take the ring and then they they break off there and he intends to be you know, taking this journey the rest of the way by himself and is accompanied by Sam. But the rest of the fellowship doesn't let him down. They spend the rest of the journey, you know, from afar doing what they can to keep the eye of Sauron off of Frodo so that he can complete the journey. So even though the fellowship had broken, you know, again, for, for you know, all intents and purposes early on, it, it really never did because they still remained devoted to the cause and devoted to to helping him any way they could. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You can look at it in two ways. You can look at it at the fellowship breaks, I'd say after only an hour into the fellowship being formed, but you can almost say, as you said, you could look at it as, no, the fellowship was always there. They never stopped helping him. They never stopped fighting the battles. And, and it's funny to me sometimes through these movies where Aragon and Gandalf will talk to each other and go, you think Frodo's still okay? You know, you think he's still fine you think he's still alive you think he's still well and they just have this belief you know they just believe that he's there that they can feel something and it's almost ridiculous that you think of these two little pint-sized hobbits can actually achieve this ridiculous mission that's been put upon them but this fellowship you know you have Gandalf the wizard you have the the other two hobbits their buddies uh, Pippin and Merry Pippin and Merry and then you have the, the trio. You have, well, actually it was four who begin, but ends up really just being the trio. But you have Boromir, Legolas, Aragon, and Gimli. And, you know, Boromir is tempted by the ring, so he doesn't make it through the first movie. It's, that's Sean Bean. Let's talk with Sean Bean. You know, the, the famous, you know, 006 that, that seems to uh, always be dying in movies. He's always, uh, whether it's Game of Thrones, sorry, spoiler, Lord yep. of the Rings, he doesn't make it, but... I love Sean Bean. Don't you love Sean Bean? Sean Bean's Sean Bean is fantastic. Uh, but we we should definitely dive into Sean Bean. He he has a lot of iconic moments for only really being in one of the three films. He has the the one does not simply walk into Mordor. That, that entire sequence is one of the biggest memes now. But what's amazing about that? I read this bit of trivia years ago that he was handed that script that day. I heard. I yep. think it was that morning. Mm-hmm. So they said when he puts his hand over his eyes to look down as almost, he's, you know, he's acting and he's trying to get into the moment and he's, he's deep in thought. He's really said taking a glance down at his script yep. to, to, he had it down there in his lap, but yeah. he does stand up. He does walk around. He delivers this wonderful monologue and he's a flawed character. And it's a wonderfully flawed character because he thinks like anyone else, why don't we use this ring? Why don't we use its power? And I feel like he's not, you know, you can judge his character, but, I don't think many other people would act different than he would in a moment that you're tempted. It's such a difficult, you're against all these orcs and demons and it's, you feel like the odds are against you. You feel like he was dealt a shorthand, you know? Yeah. He was, he had uh, the moment of, of weakness in, you know, in, in the eyes of that, per, you know, particular world altering power that a lot of the characters face, but to his credit, even though he kind of gave into that temptation, he has a full redemptive arc. Uh, it really does. It's a short moment after his moment of weakness. He goes a full 360 and gives his life to save Pippin and Mary, correct? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, even though he 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 erred, you know, in his 
devotion to the fellowship, he really does come through for them, you know, in the end, willing to sacrifice his life to try to save members of the fellowship. So I, I think Barmir is, is a, a fantastic, tragic, flawed character uh, that Sean Bean did a really great job you know, portraying. He obviously has that fantastic monologue, but you also have to give him credit. Um, throughout the making of the film, it's it's actually widely known now that Sean Bean is not particularly fond of being transported in helicopters. Apparently on day one, uh, when they were, you know, trying to do some of those scenes on the mountains, he had some helicopter trouble. So he told Peter Jackson, uh, I'm not going in a helicopter the rest of this movie. Uh, so he would hike up to where they were doing the shots. Uh, they would be setting up shots, you know, and setting up for shooting to begin around 9, 10 a.m. And Peter Jackson told multiple stories of they would be flying up in a helicopter and you'd see Sean Bean around halfway up the mountain in his full Barmere outfit hiking up there, apparently starting hiking around like three or four in the morning so that he could be on time. Wow. Yeah, I faintly remember hearing that once, but it is amazing. Yeah, I think he, Sean Bean's wonderful. The character Bormir. I think I've read that filming those sequences in the mountains were brutal for everyone. I heard it was cold, it was frigid, no one was happy to be there. But I think a credit to great filmmaking, it, it, it gives you some wonderful shots. And they're actually not in the mountains very long up there, but it's very effective. And in moving on from Sean Bean, I think it's time to talk about Legolas, Aragon, and Gimli. You know, our, I feel like they are outside of Frodo and Sam Wise, I feel like this trio becomes the other, I'd say the other heart, the other three, and they almost feel like superheroes. You know, they feel like larger than life characters that really can't lose. Even when there's thousands of enemies around them, you feel like they're gonna find a way out. They're the best at what they do. He's got the best sword. He's got the best ax. He's got the best bow and arrow. And it doesn't matter how many arrows you think he might have, he's got enough. <laughs> yeah, he's got a ton of them. But what do you have any, uh, anything about the, you know, Viggo Mortensen, Orlando Bloom? Uh, uh, John Reese Davies. Thank you. Yeah, anything about them that, that comes to mind uh, that you liked or disliked? Oh, I love everything about the that trio as well. I think their rapport off, you know, off camera really helped to kind of make their on-screen dynamic really pop. They have kind of a playful type of relationship, especially between Legolas and Gimli, that rivalry where they're always trying to, you know, count the number of foes that they've defeated and see who's going to defeat more. But I, I think we should definitely mention how Viggo Mortensen was a last second addition to the cast up until the day before production, they had Stuart Townsend set to be Aragorn and they decided to go in a different direction. And that, uh, and that might've been potentially the best casting in the movie. I mean, right. he's wonderful. I mean, I don't speak to anyone who doesn't love that his casting, love his portrayal of the part. And yeah, to talk about that trio again, I love Aragorn and Legolas's mutual respect for one another. You know, Aragorn has such a respect for elves. He's obviously involved with an elvish woman so he has such respect he knows the language he knows their lore and their their world and Legolas is very respectful to the fact that Aragorn should be the king should be the true king and his lineage and they have such a mutual respectful relationship right and on the other hand as you said the playful relationship between Gimli and Legolas I love that it's almost an analogy or a comparison to people dealing with race and in the fellowship very much 
through most of that movie, they don't want to be embarrassed one or the other. They don't like the other's kind. Right. Dwarfs don't care for elves. And throughout the movie, they gain this respect for one another that they're willing to put their lives on the line for one another. And you know what? They can look past everything else they previously thought of one another and they treat them as true friends. Yeah, they be- they become the truest of friends there. If you dig into the, the behind the scenes and the epilogue, they be- basically remain, you know, the closest of friends up until their very last days before they 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 take off to the Undying Lands together as, uh, you know, some of the last members of the Fellowship to leave. But yeah, they have a, a tremendous relationship there, kind of tracking back to Two Towers, which is getting more play than I thought it would in my mind initially. I, I think an iconic sequence for the three of them is when they take off to try to hunt down the Urukai that had, you know, captured, or at that point they weren't sure if they were captured or killed, uh, Merry and Pippin. They take off on foot, and it's a fantastic sequence where they have some amazing tracking shots. But with the behind the scenes, there was the scene where they discover, you know, the the pile of of bodies, where Viggo Mortensen kicks a helmet and screams out in in anguish over losing the two hobbits. But he had broken his two of his toes from kicking the helmet. He apparently had kicked the helmet. I think that was like the fourth or fifth take, and he kicked it really hard to try to get the right shot for it. That he broke two of his toes. So he had broken two of his toes there. Orlando Bloom had fallen off of a horse, and the the scale Gimli had fallen on top of him, and he had cracked a rib. And the the, the stunt double Gim, Gimli for those running sequences had dislocated his kneecap. So by the time they got up to the running sequence, which is famous and iconic and so great, they were the walking wounded. You had one guy with two broken toes. You had another guy with a, a broken rib, another one with a dislocated kneecap, and they're running. They ran for three days to film that sequence. And Peter Jackson said uh, he would just, he wouldn't, they're like, oh, should we do it again? He's like, no, no, no. You, I think we got it. Are you guys okay? Well, that's I didn't know any of that. That's some great trivia. And I love that sequence to follow. I love where, you know, he's known as the ranger for a while. And I like right. how they show that part of him that he's able to, you know, pick something off the ground, smell it, touch it, know what's going on in the world, track ahead to see what's going on. And that whole sequence plays out. He can kind of as he's envisioning in his head, us, the audience, envisioning what happened to Pip and Mary as, you know, the horse misses them and then they go through the woods and they go this way. And it's just so cool how we're seeing it with them at the same time. Yeah, I think the, I think you kind of nailed that as well. Him kind of renouncing his birthright of of becoming the king and and taking that position of leadership led him down this life of being this ranger with the alias of strider and getting these particular set of skills the the tracking skills really is like a phenomenal way for them to kind of it's a good way to do storytelling i think yeah absolutely it's a great way to do it where where you're kind of learning things as he's learning them rather than having the knowledge beforehand you know yeah totally because you because you think from what they showed you previously, Pip and Mary could have been stomped or stabbed or killed. Like you don't know what happened to them. So then it is cool finding out with them. But I feel like, again, we're not going to be able to touch upon, you know, characters, you know, uh, Carl Urban is, is in these movies. Liv Tyler is in these movies. We have playing the head elf is Hugo Weaving. Hugo Weaving. We have here back from the matrix. So who's also, he's been in every major franchise. He's in the Marvel right. franchise, he's in Lord of the Rings, he's in the Matrix, he's, he's set for life. The cast, you can really go through from top to bottom. There's big names everywhere. 
everyone is wonderfully cast. There's no one who sticks out. We didn't even mention yet Kate Blanchett. Right. You know, has a, is a big has a big part. You know, Liv Tyler I mentioned before, but I think each of them just gives such grace to their characters. They put their all into it, and I, I actually what was fun. I don't know if you had a chance to watch it. They through this pandemic. They've been doing these reunion YouTube videos where they bring the cast back together. Right. And watching yeah, it was a highlight. This, watching this one was one of the highlights of, of the, this past year was watching this cast, you know, decades later, 20 years later now, join up. And, you know, we didn't even mention people like Christopher Lee, the great late Christopher Lee, who has done so many wonderful things in his career. He's, you know, an Academy Award winning actor. And here is a Saruman. And, there's just so many roles like that, that I feel like you just, you, you can't spend enough time talking about Andy Serkis, you know, is right. doing Gollum, you know, he's the, probably the most well-known motion capture actor and he does a phenomenal award-winning job. Yeah. I was, I was hoping we were going to get to Andy Serkis. I'm glad you mentioned him. Uh, his work as Gollum as oddly Smeagol. as Smeagol, uh <laughs> playing both parts of it. Uh, you know, it's, his, his kind of bipolar type of you know approach to life after being taken by the ring he does a, a phenomenal job uh which primarily had been motion capture for the first two films but he finally got to you know have some some face time in in, in the third film but yeah, it's, it's 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 such a, an amazing cast of characters uh i'll just throw one more tidbit out there which the uber nerds for lord of the rings will remember there's brett mckenzie in like a two second cameo in the the first uh movie of fly the concords fame a character who ended up being named by the internet as figwit which stands for frodo is great who is that kudos to him he, he had a one second basically role in in the first movie and it became so famous that he ended up being able to come back for the third film oh that's i had no idea that's really cool yeah, there was a there was a lot of, of lore and a lot of people we would now say uh, standing figwit to the point that they basically demanded that he came, he would come back and and they squeezed him into the the Return of the King. No, that's cool. I, I love stuff. This, I feel like this movie has so many tidbits like that, and because of you know the you have the theatrical version of this movie, you have the extended version. These movies are if you watch them their full length, then it actually does add a lot of depth to the story right. sometimes you get these extended and director's cuts and it's a lot of fluff but this i really feel like it does a lot of world building character building and does add to it now yeah. maybe it's not the best way to watch it every time but i definitely say it's worth experiencing yeah i couldn't agree more uh for me at this point it, it's hard for me to separate the theatrical cut from the extended edition at this point because i've seen the extended edition so many times but I, the extended editions, to my mind, are the definitive cut, just because they add so much depth and they they tie up everything in in ways that you just weren't going to be able to be. Yeah, I agree. When when you think back on extended version, director's cut, I can probably count on on both my hands how many times I felt like that version was the superior version. You know, there's some bad movies that it it made them slightly better, but very rarely does a great movie like this really feel like it is made better. And you didn't think these two and a half hour long movies needed more, but when you want to live with these characters and understand this world and it can just flesh it out even more, I, I agree with you. I've probably only seen the extended for about three times each. I do usually find myself watching the theatrical because one, 
it's usually on TV more. So if you're watching it on right. TNT or TBS, I forgot which station usually was airing it for many years, you would see it usually the theatrical version. But also, you don't always have the time to sit down and watch a three hour plus movie when the two and a half one seems so much shorter. Yeah, I'm long overdue on on what I used to do as a tradition prior to it being a thing apparently on How I Met Your Mother, but I, I would do a trilogy version with Lord of the Rings where we would basically have a, a group of my friends. Uh, we would watch the extended editions all three in one day, which is a lot of Lord of the Rings, but you know, I think, uh, I think it's back an experience. In college, I might've done that. And uh, it, it might've been with someone we both know. I might've made him watch it for the first time back, there back you in go. the day. <laughs> but there is something to watching this movie either consecutive nights or all in one show. And you start around, you know, 10, 11 o'clock or noon right. time and you go start to finish through all of them. And there's something really cool about that because as we said, this is one story. This is, you cannot really watch the first movie and be fully satisfied nor the second one even more so. Right. This is one continuous story that really the pieces each build upon the previous one. So, you know, we talked about some of the actors. We talked about some of the characters of these movies. We would need, 20 podcasts probably to cover it fully we talked about some of the the environments the areas that were filmed the the wonderful score and, and music throughout these movies we we did talk briefly about peter jackson and his his wonderful direction mark are there any specific lines or sequences to you that that are standout memorable that you just love that you can watch over and over again and, and to this day are just just stick with you from these movies i'm sure there's plenty but any that that signature ones there's there's a lot of them there are some strange ones that always stick in my uh in my mind there's i forget which movie it is it might be in the third one is it the second or the third no it might be the first one actually pippin actually bumps into his a skull uh while they're in the mines of moria and it just drops all the way down and you hear and the clangs all the, the way clink, down the clink the... and clank all the way down and then you hear one other thing drop and hit and then gandalf just looks at him with the wrath of God and calls him a fool of a took. He says, next yeah, he time, throw yourself that, down Gandalf and rid us of your stupidity. a couple times in the trilogy. The, fool that, of that, a took. I love it. I love oh, it. Oh, it's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, that yeah, sequence it's begins a, it's great and becomes sequence. a great battle with the, you know, the, what is it? The big troll. The cave troll, right. Yeah. No, that's a wonderful sequence. Remember, I actually just before that, before they get in the cave, you know, they're outside at this door and they can't oh, yeah. figure out how to get in. And then this water creature comes out and that also becomes a really cool sequence as well. And I would say my favorite part, maybe of all three movies, as much as I love Gandalf showing up at the end of Helm's Deep, as much as I love watching the third in Return of the King, watching the woman take down the head of the... The Witch King. The wit, yeah, that is such a cool moment. It's just, you know, it's 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 wonderful the way it's done. But I think my favorite moment is the the probably the biggest quote, the most known quote in Lord of the Rings: "None shall pass." And it's Gandalf, just the Balrog coming towards him on the bridge, him taking his you know staff cane, slamming it down, and you really think at that moment that Gandalf's gone. That sequence is awesome. You know, fly you fools, telling me yeah. to go, and it's just an awesome sequence. And every time that happens, even though I know he's gonna come back, and he's gonna have that awesome sequence in the beginning of Two Towers, where him and the the Balrog, the the, the fire demon, are 
falling and falling and falling what seems like forever and they're right. battling in the air it's so cool but that none shall pass quote and and sequence is just awesome i think gandalf also ends up with one of my favorite uh sequences of complete and utter confusion for no apparent reason in the second film where he comes back and they say gandalf and he's like gandalf that was my name gandalf the gray and he says i'm gandalf the white but you're still gandalf why are you confused at the name gandalf even if you're gandalf the white you know it's so funny mark i'm re-watching these movies and they maybe they explain it better in the books and i'm re-watching the movies for the 10th 15th 20th time whatever how many right. times i've watched them recently and as i'm watching it i'm my wife ends up because well, didn't he die? Well, how's he back? I'm like, you know what? They don't really explain it. They don't explain they, how, how they explain he it very story. briefly. Very briefly. And you just kind of go with it because you're happy he's back. And he's getting off the white. He's not the gray. So he's right. back. But you don't understand. He gets all his memories back quickly. Right. Like almost after like another 10 minutes, you're like, oh, Gandalf's back. But like, right. <laughs> but, my, but my my part that I always thought was interesting is that, That's they, that they, say, call me. they say Gandalf and he's still Gandalf. He's just Gandalf the white. Why is he confused about the Gandalf part of it? Like if they That's, said Gandalf the gray, he'd be like the gray. I would be like, all right, yeah, he's Gandalf the white. He doesn't remember Gandalf the gray. It's, you know what, well, we're probably going to yell that in the comments. I'm sure somebody can explain it to us that we're wrong, that no, this is why. But I agree with you. That always, that always made me chuckle a little bit. Oh, it's, that's a, that's a phenomenal one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's just so many sequences and quotes that you can think of that really are, are going to be in filmmaking history forever. I agree. I agree. This movie. I, you know, I can't wait till the day I can show my son this these movies and this adventure. And I think there are some dark sequences. Maybe it might take a little longer than I think. There are some scarier, right. darker moments, these movies. But as far as filmmaking, and if you enjoy fantasy and science fiction, this just brings you to a whole other world. It's an amazing story. I, I, I don't know that anyone will ever do three movies better than this as far as just how complete and how just thorough and how in depth and the music and the characters and the casting it's just it's it's i just think it's phenomenal i couldn't agree with you more this podcast really is the the podcast of the cinderella story of of the underdog rocky tale of all different movies but i think it's it this is going to be the only one where you had a trilogy of films that they really took a big chance on with a, a well-known property, right? Maybe not to every single person, but it, it was a well-known established property. Sure. And they took a big swing and New Orleans Linderman took an even bigger swing by acquiring it and saying, you know what? Can you flesh it out into a trilogy? We trust you to make it how you're going to make it. Yeah, that's but a lot of trust to put in Peter a lot. Jackson. And I'm sure by now, a lot of people have heard that Amazon is working on a TV series. And you know what? I think TV series do have some advantages that movies don't have that sometimes because you can have three or four seasons and you can do 10 or 15 or 20 episodes that are hour long, you can do some special things that a movie is limited with. Even with three hour long movies, there's still right. so much, so much you could do. So, you know what? I, some purists are mad. Some people are upset. I'm all for it. If they want to make a TV series that's eight, nine, 10 seasons long and can world build and, and create Lord of the Rings even more so, or give me a, a, a slightly alternate, different version that, that does things right. their own way. I have no problem with that. I don't know how you feel about it. Uh, I mean, there's a, it's, it's always going to be compared 
to this film trilogy. So that's inescapable, but I'm always open to, to different interpretations of, of the same material. If you can come up with something that is different and new and still awesome in its own right, I'm definitely in favor of having more Lord of the Rings, you know, to watch and enjoy. But if we, before we wrap up, if we just think about the alternate version of history, if this movie wasn't picked up by New Line Cinema and it stuck with Miramax and Peter Jackson had given in, it would have been a single two-hour movie. Yeah, I know. Hard to believe. And, and that's what Hobbit almost was when right. they first announced Hobbit is going to be one movie and they said no, it was going to be two and then they made it into eventually three as well. And you can possibly argue that the flow and certain things and certain events in the Hobbit trilogy don't work as well. And right. I would agree with them, but these three movies, I don't know how you would have told them as a two hour movie, yeah. especially just one of them. I feel like there's very little f extra fluff in these movies. You cut out certain events or sequences or cut anything shorter. And I feel like you could take part of what makes these movies great. Yeah, I think I think a lot of that comes down to the the source material here. You had, you know, like a thousand pages of source material without even counting the appendices, and then you had the the Hobbit was basically a children's novel of like 150 200 pages. So the thought of of kind of expanding the Hobbit into a trilogy kind of blew my mind in a different way, but thinking about this this world, these you know, books and then the trilogy of films and how it even remotely could have been compressed into a single film, let alone a single film that they wanted at two hours and no more than two hours. I, it's unthinkable. I 100% I agree. And that is why these three movies are going to be part of our hall of fame. So we're doing our first podcast. We're inducting three movies. It's like one really long movies. So that's our yeah. excuse, but you know, we could have done three separate pods and talk about each individually, but I feel like it, the overlap as far as conversation, right. just naturally easier for us to just talk about why these movies are great. It's a lot of the similar cast members. There's very few movies that just an actor just in one movie. There is a, a flow that kind of goes throughout them. And I, I can't wait to watch these movies again. Every time I finish them, I can't wait to join them again. And I think these movies are not going away. I think these movies are going to be part of, you know, pop culture, as we've said, you know, it's right. maybe not as, as quotable as a Lion King or as, as marketable. And as far as some other movies, we have Star Wars, we've talked about, it's not probably not as marketable and they make their money in different ways. I'm sure with, with showing it on TV over and over again. Right. But these movies, I think are the, just when you, as far as talking about a fantasy story, a journey, as you said, like a hero's tale, a tale of underdogs. Right. I don't think there's anything better. There's definitely, there definitely isn't anything that's going to exceed it. There may, there might be other things that, that get to the same type of a level, but there's nothing that, that it really exceeds it here. It's a, it's a phenomenal film accomplishment. I think it's going to be part of pop culture, especially, you know, with the bar mirror memes that still pop up from time to time, but also part of just like kind of our, our film film watching and filmmaking dna going forward just the I way they also, approach this, things this is also just showing just how amazing our imagination is as far as filmmakers and, and directors and screenwriters i feel like if you've shown these three movies to someone in, in back in 1950 or 1960 and showed them what we'd be capable of one day 
think it's hard to come up with three better movies that show wonderful acting. You know, that right. everything here is taken extremely seriously. Everyone portrays their roles with, with conviction and everything's spectacularly done as far as the, the landscapes, as we've said, the, the music. I think if you showed these movies to anyone, they'd say, wow, filmmaking has, is, has done things that I never thought possible. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's why it's, you know, one of the top films for the AFI uh, on their list regularly. And it's always mentioned among the top films of all time in any critical or fan list. What I find interesting, and this might be one of my last, sorry if I'm going on long here, I would say the villain of, it's Sauron is the, is the villain, correct? Right. Sauron and then Saruman by extension. Yeah. Right. But the character of Sauron, he's supposed to be this big bad, but he's never really in the movies. You know, he's right. in the intro where they're talking about what happened in the past. His eye is always right. watching. But it's funny that you can talk about these. Uh, he's the villain, but he never actually takes on a physical form. And I think it's so right. interesting that you have these movies and you have some of these characters that are evil and you have all these thousands and thousands of orcs. But it's funny that, you know, when you talk about Star Wars, you talk about any of these other properties, you always have the, or Harry Potter, you have this obvious villain. Right. And this, the villain, he doesn't take a physical form. I kind of wish it happened. I feel like I wish he kind of could have taken form to battle the good guys, you know? Oh, well, it, it, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll take the other side of this, not just for the argument's sake, but I think what makes him so terrifying is that you know they have the eye that's always watching, and when you take a, a something and put it into that physical form, it limits his scope, right? It's his, he's bigger than life because he's just this all-watching eye that's on this in this ivory tower that's watching at all times. All I think that not having a physical manifestation just makes him, makes him larger more, than life, makes right? Him makes him a little more abstract and it makes it bigger. But the only other thing I wanted to make sure that I, I mentioned, because I'm going to kick myself if I don't, we've mentioned so many aspects of the film. The one thing that I didn't dive into, I at least want to recognize, is the phenomenal job they did with costuming in this film. So many different, you know, feels for the, the different worlds, but just the amount of work they went into just for even the Hobbit feet. Like they made, I believe, from like researching it, they did almost 20,000 different pieces yeah, uh, I, I, have to, I have to agree with you. The makeup, the wardrobe, the costumes, the, by extension, some of the you know the the settings and the environments and, and should I probably props, right. all of this just I agree with you. That creates the world. And if you don't have the proper costumes and you don't have the proper props and makeup and you don't get everyone looking the way this fantasy world should, it it all falls apart. Yeah, absolutely. So shout out to the, the customers that yeah. really tied this world together. You know, I think that's something we probably haven't discussed, this being a, or 10 plus episodes into our, our series here. And I don't think we've ever really gotten into the costumes, the clothes in many of our podcasts. Right. You know, in most of them, it hasn't been very relevant, you know, in, you know, Back to the Future, you know, in The Matrix. Yes, they're signature and iconic, but it's 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 nothing that jumps off the screen and is memorable. Here, I agree with you. If you don't get the, the wizards, the soldiers, the the orcs, I mean, you think about all the different diversity of characters you have here. You know, right. Aragon's his outfit, the the leather straps around his wrist, and the the chain mails that they're wearing. If you don't get all of that perfect to what a Dungeons and Dragons world and a, a this type of world looks like, it all crumbles. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think admittedly, it's it's kind of a blind spot of mine. Uh, not something that I'm completely familiar with here uh, in general, but it, it'd be remiss of me not to at least mention it here, particularly uh, within the world of Lord of the Rings with well, all I the different characters. Take, I, I think it's easy to take certain things for granted when we watch yeah, these absolutely. movies. You know, some movies we take for granted the music, some movies we take for granted the amazing acting that we're seeing on the screen. And in this case, I agree with you. You know, we went an hour plus talking about this movie and we, we dropped our jaw and, and, and we're gawking at all the beautiful set pieces and the shots they got and what spectacular actors and characters, but it's easy to overlook some of the, the most important details. Right, right. And probably uh, among the people that put in the most amount of time worked because before those shots can even be done a lot of these actors are putting on different prosthetics and you know there's famous stories of five six seven hours in a makeup chair before they can even start shooting yeah so, i would much rather be gandalf in a wig than it would be an orc covered in whatever right. crook and mud they put on them <laughs> right and the full-eyed contacts that they definitely had for oh, at least yeah. the urukai so absolutely yeah. well mark i think we could probably do a whole second or third podcast on this one if we wanted to it these movies are are important to me i know they're important to you you were no older than 15 16 years old when these movies came out yeah. and we didn't know what they were either of us you know our parents knew more about what J.R.R. tolkien had had written about and how big those 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 stories were but they weren't much to us and it just shows how powerful these movies were to us that here we are talking about them and they're easily deserving a place they if i had to like chop the hall of fame list in half these would easily survive before i would chop uh you know i would chop other movies much quicker than i would these couldn't agree with you more these are foundational movies for you know my own personal movie background i, I couldn't be happier that we got to you know do an in in-depth type of discussion about you know some of my favorite yeah. films yeah i think some of my appreciation of film and filmmaking and storytelling is probably from experiencing these movies as a teenager. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm definitely the same. And it's one of the reasons why New Zealand's uh, among the you know top places I want to visit because uh, I want to go to Hobbiton. I feel it's like every happen. movie where they say, well, wow, where, where was that beautiful shot? Where did they do it? And every time it's New Zealand, I'm like, yeah. this must be the most beautiful place on earth. Yeah, yeah. And I think they, they do a great job. Uh, aside from this being just a, a great film to show you know, people how you can really excel at filmmaking it, it really could just be you know for for tourism in new zealand because i'm i'm down i'm ready to go <laughs> seriously so mark anything closing if not i think I, I could keep carrying on carrying on i don't want to run long anything that you wanted to uh to come tie a nice bow on this no i think we, we we covered everything that that i wanted to cover i'm glad i i got my uh my costumer you know recognition in there at the end I'm sure your check is in the mail from that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully. Um, so anything you want to plug before we uh, call this one quits? Yeah, just make sure you're following us on social. I also stream video games uh, on occasion. It's twitch.tv slash Fidelis. And please follow us on Instagram at Hall of Fame Pod. Uh, every episode that goes up every week, we are getting more followers and we appreciate that. If you could, please leave a review. You don't realize how much that helps, but every time you leave a review and a five-star rating, we actually move up in the search engines. So please put a good word in for us and we uh, hope to see you again next time. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you, man. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.